Welcome to VSI. No, not Vertical Speed Indicator. This is Variation Selection Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. I'm Randall Hayes. It's 6 o'clock in the morning, and I'm sitting out on the couch recording this with Chloe, the Wonder Dog, who won't go back to sleep. Yesterday was gorgeous. One of those 60-degree November days that makes me glad to live where I do in North Carolina. When I got home from work, I sat out on the front stoop for a while, watching a flock of crows comb the yard. The sky was getting gray, but that only made the green grass and the bright red berries on my neighbor's otherwise bare dogwood tree seem that much brighter. Last week I mailed a box of those little berries to a biologist named Jim Smith up at Michigan State because he wanted to study some maggots that might be inside of them. That's the random social network side of science. I'm now helping out with yet another project in which I have very little training uh, just because I went to lunch with the guy who's doing it after he gave a talk to my department. People don't think about that when they think about science or scientific careers. People think it's all planned. So anyway, I'm sitting out on the porch, paying new attention to these lichen-covered little trees with their little red berries. And I started thinking, in terms of calories, the fruit might be an even bigger investment for the plant than the flowers and their nectar. In other words, based on the energies the trees put into cultivating those relationships, the birds who spread the seeds must be even more important from the plant's point of view than the bees who pollinate the flowers. Hmm, that's interesting. Economists and policy types who talk about valuing ecological services are very worried about bees right now, mostly because they pollinate our food crops, but I've never heard anyone try to put a value on the dispersal of seeds by birds. A shift in perspective can make you ask whole new sets of questions. Like, does a plant even have a point of view? That's a tension that has always run through the science of biology. There's one group of people, the naturalists, who think that being subjective is a good thing, who want to, in some sense, become the creatures they study to gain insight into how they see the world. Then there are the dissectors, who think that being subjective takes away from being objective, from viewing the creatures they study as interesting objects. Sort of by definition, You can't have a relationship with an object. And dissectors don't want relationships with the things they study, for the most part. Relationships are messy and difficult. They get in the way of seeking the truth. And they're not wrong about that. Personal relationships do blind us to some truths. But there are lots of true things out there. We don't know most of them. Take this dinosaur bird link that I've been ranting about lately as one example. We were very confident that dinosaurs were big and slow and stupid. Watch The Rite of Spring from the first Fantasia movie 60 years ago. All the dinosaurs are slow-moving, 
and even color-wise. They're muddy greens and browns, except the stegosaur, which has blue eyes for some reason. Now, with the bird link gaining evidence, we have to reimagine the dinosaurs. I had some help with that reimagining from this week's episode of Nature on PBS called My Life as a Turkey. It reenacts Joe Hutto's book of the same name where he hatched a bunch of wild turkeys and let them imprint on him as their parent. We understand something about the neural circuits that do that behavior. Would dinosaurs have had those same circuits? Maybe. If you watch this documentary online, notice the sinuous motion of the long scaly legs of the turkeys as they pick their way through the fields and woods. Dinosaurs might have moved their feet like that, curling their toes up into partial foot fists and then spreading them again on the downstep. Watch their iridescent feathers shimmering and flashing in the Florida sunlight. Watch them rub on their keeper and sleep in his lap while he scribbles on a pad. Would some dinosaurs have acted like that? Maybe. Of course, there are important differences, too. Turkeys bob their heads forward and back as they walk to keep their balance. You might have seen pigeons doing the same thing, only faster. Dinosaurs, on the other hand, had long, heavy tails to balance their long necks and toothy heads, so they would not have needed to make that same motion. Many of them also had hands. That would have changed the way they moved, too. The game is always not to take any one metaphor too far. To be flexible and playful at one moment to generate your hypotheses. That's the variation part. And the next moment, to switch over to being rigid and logical and select from those possibilities. It's a constant and difficult mental balancing act. My son thought this was one of the best episodes of nature he'd ever seen. His second grade class, a couple years ago, hatched some chicken eggs in an incubator. And from that experience, he really connected with the turkey chicks in the video as they fell out of their shells, weak and wet and blinking their black eyes. He started talking about a pet bird. When I was a kid, Walt Disney made a lot of nature documentaries in addition to their animated films. And those were all about making the animals seem as much like humans as possible. And apparently that really appealed to a certain demographic. My mother-in-law tells this story about how people in Yellowstone around that time would do just insane things, like putting jam on the baby's face so they could get a picture of a friendly wild bear licking the jam off the baby just like Baloo from the Jungle Book. Later on, of course, the fashion and nature films shifted to a more religious way of looking at animals, where they're different from us, uh, like angels, and like angels, morally better than us, with our pollution and our greed and our violence. I'm thinking of movies like uh, Never Cry Wolf and Gorillas in the Mist, Personally, I like both kinds of those movies. 
I like being reminded that nature is big and I am small. I think that's an important message. But I can see where a nine-year-old might get more than enough of that particular message just from being nine. The other thing that comes across in Joe Hutto's experiences is that these are wild turkeys. They hunt. They fight. They fly. They're not stupid farm animals. They know which snakes are dangerous without ever experiencing a snake bite. That's so different from human children. They have to learn that most snakes are nothing to be afraid of. And, and the difference I'm talking about is not the fear which we share with the turkeys, but the selective and specific nature of that fear. I find that really fascinating. Then there was the effect that the wild turkeys had on other animals like deers and snakes while they were walking through the woods. Those other animals stopped avoiding Joe, the turkey, the way they had avoided Joe, the human. How does that work? I've only seen a wild turkey once in my life. Ironically enough, it was here in town, crossing the road at dusk as we were on our way home from our Aikido class last fall. Like the battleground bear back in the summer, it was that little touch of wildness, that reminder that our cultural technological world is not the only one, that we live in the natural world whether we choose to recognize it or not. It's a nice way to end the day. Think about that as you're gnawing on a crisp golden drumstick this Thursday. That's all the time we have for today. Tune back in this weekend for a special road trip edition of the show. VSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University with funding from the National Science Foundation. Thanks for listening.